So it's good to be back with you this morning. If you were here last week, I was not. Um, and trust me, I much would have preferred to be here with you than where I was. Um, I started getting sick on Thursday. I started getting achy. And, um, you know, I, I did not, uh, I, I, was, I lived in a semi-quarantine state for several days um, but uh, I, I, I missed it. I missed being with my church family. I missed worshiping with you. I missed praying with you, uh, sharing God's word with you, and, and the fellowship that comes uh, when you belong to a local church. Uh, so I, I really, really missed uh, being with you all uh, last week, last Sunday. But I knew that you were in good hands. Eli and Mary Gotro were phenomenal people. Um, I, I just love them, and uh, I knew that, that God would speak to you through their ministry, so I'm glad uh, for those of you that were here. Um, if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen online. Um, it's under the uh, our church website under the sermons tab. You can click guest speakers, and uh, you'll hear Eli's message. It was phenomenal. Um, but regardless, I was sick for four days, and I woke up Monday morning, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to work. I am got to get out of this house. <laughs> Angela's like, now you know how I feel. Um, yes, I do. Uh, I do know. And, uh, and that was just on a very small scale. I was like Monday morning, I had to get out of the house and go to work regardless of how I felt. I had stuff I needed to do and I was confident that I would feel better once I kind of got, uh, in, in the routine as I normally do. So, um, I had a, a lot of administrative tasks to take care of because I had been sick so every Monday morning, uh, my, the staff, the church staff and I meet 9 o'clock uh, every Monday, and we talk about the previous week. We talk about what, um, uh, what happened in the previous day's service, what went right, what we need to do better, what we have coming up that we need to be planning for. And uh, so after the meeting, after staff meeting, I went in my office. I had a list of things I needed to get accomplished, closed the door because, you know, I didn't know if I was still sick, so I didn't want to infect anybody in the office, and uh, shut the door, got stuff to do, and uh, was preparing to start checking things off my to-do list when the Lord spoke to me very clearly, and he said these words, abide with me. Now, I know I must have had a very confused look on my face when the Lord spoke that to me um, because the first thing I thought was, well, what does that mean? I've been a Christian for nearly 40 years, um, and I know you're like just trying to do the mental math. How old is he? Well, I got saved at the decadent age of four. And uh, when I realized I was a horrible, depraved sinner and I needed God's grace. Uh, so I've technically been saved since I was four years old. So we never discount the value of children's ministry. Uh, because children's, children that age can understand at least part of uh, their, their situation and their need for a Savior. So uh, I've been a, a Christian for four, almost 40 years now. I've been in ministry for over 20 years and uh, the first question I ask the Lord is, well, exactly how do I do that? Like, that's a bit of an intangible. It's a bit abstract. Abide with me. Uh, so I started getting busy with text messages. Some of you called me. Some of you texted me um, on Monday. And some of you sent me emails. And I did my best to 
I started responding to them. I started answering the phone and, and all of this. And uh, as soon as I started, you know, searching stuff on the Internet and, and you know, starting my to-do list, I'm like, okay, Lord, I'll abide with you. Um, but I w- started getting busy with all of my administrative tasks. And the Lord said, I mean, like immediately, you're not abiding with me. Abide with me. And so I was like, okay. Um, so I Googled the definition of the word abide. <laughs> I'm like, okay. If, so in Scripture, what does that word mean? So just because I've got to make sure if God wants me to do it, I want to make sure I'm doing it right. Uh, so I uh, you know, looked up. I had to do a word search on the word abide. Because, you know, for me, I mean, just the way I'm wired, it's, it's go, 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 all the time. Um, even when I'm resting, I'm working. Uh, we recently went on to Florida for uh, our national convention, and, you know, it should have been fun. It should have been relaxing. And when I came back, people asked me, how was your vacation? Now, technically, it was not a vacation. It was a work trip, but that's fine. I, I said, well, the problem with taking a vacation is you can't take a vacation from yourself. And so all of your problems and all the problems that are wrong with your personality are still with you on your vacation. <clears throat> and so I, I did a word search on what does it mean to abide? And here's what it means. This is the definition. It means to remain, to dwell, to rest with, to sit down with, to gather together to have conversation, or to continue being in the presence of someone. Now, you may have all known that, but I felt like it was worth, if I'm going to do it, I need to make sure I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So I put everything down. I put my to-do list down, and I began to pray. I just prayed and said, Lord, you know, uh, help me. Help me understand what you want from me. Help me understand what I'm supposed to do. Uh, Because, you know, again, for me, it's all about doing something i got to be busy doing something. If, I don't, if I'm not doing anything, I feel guilty when, when our church staff walks by and Pastor Jason's just sitting back in his you know, executive chair not doing anything. They're like, well, look at this guy. This is what we pay you for. You know, I feel guilty. i got to look at busy at least. And, you know, don't you, when you're, when you're at work and your boss walks by and you're like, oh, i got to minimize that window. I was, you know, watching Netflix at work and I'm not supposed to do that, you know. Um, so you, you, when your boss walks by, you feel like you got to look busy. And uh, so I was sitting in my chair, and I was just trying to abide, trying to rest in God's presence. And I was like, Lord, please don't let anybody on the staff walk by because they're going to think I'm not doing anything all day. So I turned my blinds (laughs) so they couldn't look in. (laughs) So I, I was praying, and then I waited. And the Lord may not do to you or speak to you the way he speaks to me, but he speaks to me uh, um, directly, sometimes incredibly directly, uh, to the point of painfully directly. And uh, he started, he spoke a passage of scripture to me, and then he started to do some heart surgery on me. And he totally wrecked me. Monday, he absolutely wrecked me. He told me to read Jeremiah 29. Now, you may jump to the same conclusion that I jumped to when the Lord said, read Jeremiah 29. I'm like, oh, Lord, I know that. Verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And the Lord said, right chapter. 
Wrong verse. So I read Jeremiah 29. And God was doing two things in this chapter. He was encouraging those that he had sent to Babylon in exile. But then he rebuked the prophets who were not listening to God's voice. And they were telling people something other than what the Spirit wanted them to hear. Verse 19 in Jeremiah 29, it says, Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. And that sentence just jumped right off the page at me. And I was like, can we go back? I like verse 11. Way, way better than I like this verse. And I responded to the Lord, what am I doing wrong? I'm, I'm preaching your word. I mean, we've been going in depth in the word of God. And, and through the life of Christ, we've been taking our time. And, and some people might think we're dragging our heels. But we're, we're really going in depth in the life of Christ so we can understand what Jesus is doing, where he is, and the context of everything that's going on. And now you're saying that I haven't been listening to you? And he replied to me, You know how to craft a sermon, but how much more powerful it would be if it had my anointing behind it. It gets worse. He said, and this is what the Lord said to me. He said, anytime somebody starts a sentence with, you know what your problem is? You just like, you you feel like you just want to turn around and just walk away. Like, please don't finish that sentence. I'm just going to go. I'd rather not know. The Lord said to me, he said, your problem is you think you don't need my help. You can look at the original languages. You can consult the commentaries. You can write a sermon that's funny and that's engaging. But if it's not anointed, it's just man's words on the subject. Isaiah chapter 10, it talks about how God would strengthen his people, how we would empower his people and anoint his people so that they could cast off the yoke of bondage. And that anointing, the anointing and the empowerment of God is what breaks those bonds. It's not clever speeches. It's not funny stories. It's not what commentators think. It's the anointing. God said that I was living my life like he had covered the night shift and he was tagging me in at 7 a.m. for the rest of the day to do his job. God said, no, you aren't in charge. I'm still here. You didn't tag me out because I don't need to rest. Walk with me. Go with me where I'm going. Don't run ahead of me and try to show me where we should go. Don't drag your feet when I'm ready to move forward either. Abide with me. Dwell with me. Walk with me. Stay step for step with me so we can look each other in the eye and talk. And then God said to me, he said, you're the hero of your own story. Monday was a rough, rough day. I mean, I was repeatedly asking God, can we be done abiding? This is painful. I had work to do. I had ministry work to do. The Lord said, no, abide with me. He said, you are consistently the hero of your own story. 
You tell stories in a way that make you look good, that make you out to be the center of attention. You sprinkle in enough false humility to make it seem like you're not doing it because most of the time you don't even realize that you've done it. But you are repeatedly the hero of your own story. When Angela and I were talking about the decision that uh, the board and I had been discussing regarding the church tithing to missions, we knew that it would come as welcome news to missionaries. Who wouldn't get excited? Who wouldn't be thankful to hear about a church that was going to take them on uh, with a monthly pledge and they didn't even have to do that hard sales pitch first? So we figured out it would make us well-known. It would probably make us well-liked with missionaries. And I even made the statement several times, and I still stand by it, though it probably comes off wrong. I have said... Many times I would rather be loved by missionaries and hated by pastors than hated by missionaries and loved by pastors. Angela and I were reading a scripture, uh, probably in Jeremiah. Isaiah or Jeremiah is where we've been for the past few months, reading these passages in depth. And There was a passage, uh, the passage of the day, which talked about to make sure your offering to God was holy and given with the right motives. She, she was like, read that, go back, read that verse again. So I read the verse again. And then she said to me, we need to make sure our sacrifice is holy. If the, Lord, if, if the church is going to give sacrificially to missions, we need to make sure that it's holy. Now, God was dealing with her and had yet to deal with me on the subject because I was sitting there thinking, how is it not holy? It's the tithe. The tithe belongs to the Lord. We're tithing the church's income to missions. What could be more holy than that? But it's not about the amount. It's not about the percentage. It's about the heart behind it. It's about the motives behind it. And so what is the question? What, I'm sorry, the question is what is the motive for our generosity? So we can be popular with the missionaries? Yes, I love missionaries. I love their heart. I love their willingness to give everything they have and go wherever God's called them to go. I have a missionary calling on my life, and one day the Lord will tap us on the shoulder and say, it's time, and I'll be one of them. But like a broken record, Angela's statement kept ringing in my ears. Make sure the sacrifice is holy. And it's not about bringing fame to me or to this church, but to the Lord. Stop being the hero of your own story. Worship leader named Jason Upton, he was praying that God would raise him up to be used powerfully for God. He wanted to be part of the army that God was raising up in the last days. He didn't want God to pass him by. He wanted to be part of what God was doing. But the problem was that his motives were not pure. In a time of prayer with the Lord, God rebuked him sharply and painfully. For his unseen motives. Jason put, his, put, put God's response to him to music. And this is what God spoke back to him. And I've got the lyrics up here for you so you can follow along. It says, you've got your best men on your front side. You always show your best side. Evil's always on the other side. You say this is your strategy. But son, I hope you take it from me. You look just like your enemy. You're full of pride. You're full of pride. 
And then the Lord spoke to Jason and he said, Star, how beautiful you shine. Your shine's more beautiful than mine. You shine from sea to shining sea. Worldwide is your strategy. But shining star, I hope you see. If the whole wide world is staring straight at you, they can't see me. They can't see me. I want them to know me, but they can't see me. I want to show my glory, but they can't see me. So this is God's rebuke to Jason. He says, so rise, rise, rise. Live out your fantasy. Think that you're better than me. Rise, rise, rise. Live out your man-made religiosity. Rise, rise, rise. Live out your strategies. Rise, rise. Rise so the world can see. Rise, rise, rise so the world can see. So the world can see just another dying star. That's a heavy rebuke. So Jason... After the Lord rebuked him, he wrote the rest of the song, and it says, we'd better trash our idols if we want to be in the army of the Lord. And the greatest idol is you and me. We'd better get on the threshing floor. When will we learn that God's strategy is giving glory to the Lord? So we better trash our idols because we want to be in the army of the Lord. Now, you may think, Pastor Jason, you read your Bible regularly, You pray, you worship, you do all the things you're supposed to do. How is that not abiding? Trust me, that was the question I asked him. How is that not abiding? When spiritual disciplines become nothing more than things you get out of the way and check them off of your to-do list to get to other things, that's not abiding. I'll say it again. When spiritual disciplines become nothing more than things you get out of the way to check them off your list and get to other things, that's not abiding. That's not dwelling. That's not treasuring your relationship with the living God. That is religion. So what does it mean to abide with him? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 3, and that's where we're going to be in just a moment. What does it mean to abide with him? What does that even mean? Trust me, I asked repeatedly. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist recognized, he recognized that it was not about him. It wasn't about building his following. It wasn't about gaining popularity. John knew that the hero of his story was not supposed to be John, but it was supposed to be Jesus. So John said to his disciples in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. And what does that mean? That means that abiding makes Jesus the hero of your story. If you have your bulletin insert, that's your first blank you can fill in. Abiding in Jesus makes Jesus the hero of your story. He must increase and we must decrease. His mission must be larger and our mission must be smaller. His glory must be greater and our glory must be lesser. His fame must increase and our fame must decrease. That it's all about him and it's all for him. All the church ministries we do, all the church outreaches are worthless if they're not done for him and about him. 
All of the things you do at work are worthless if they're not done for him or about him. You don't, you don't work for a paycheck. You don't work for your boss. You work as unto the Lord. I used to, when I worked uh, at a, a company in the Heights, every day I didn't understand what I was supposed to do. I didn't know, I didn't understand the job. It was incredibly complicated. And my training consisted of about, you know, a day and a half. And I was, they were like, oh, you'll pick it up. Well, spoiler alert, it took me about 18 months to pick it up. It was incredibly complicated. But every day I would sit down in my cubicle and I would pray for my boss and I would pray for her boss and her boss. And I would say, Lord, help me do my job so well that it makes my boss look good. I didn't say, help me do my job so well that it makes me look good. I said, help me do my job so well that it makes my boss look good. That her boss comes to her and says, man, you guys are on top of things. And my boss can go, (laughs) but God was blessing me and was causing me as I was blessed to be a blessing to my boss and my boss. I, I knew, I knew that I was not working as unto her. I was not working for Jackie. I was working for Jesus. I was not working for myself. I wasn't working for the management. I wasn't even working for the company. I was working for the Lord. That everything was about him and everything was for him. All of your ambitions, all the things that you want to see done, all the dreams that you have, if they're not for Jesus, if they're not about Jesus, they're all worthless. They don't mean anything and they will crumble and fall. And trust me, God will give you enough rope. He'll give you rope. Because if you consistently push your plan, your purpose, your dream, say, Lord, I want you to bless what I'm doing. God will give you a little bit of rope. But when he yanks that rope back and says, you are way off course, you better have the wisdom to listen. Because if you don't, you're going to have one of my Mondays. And it'll hurt. Scripture says that in him we live and move and have our being in him. In him, we live and we move and we have our being. That means apart from him, we don't live. Apart from him, we don't move. And apart from him, we don't have our existence. This, I, 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 I'm telling you, folks, that our country is full of Christians who absolutely don't get it, don't want to get it. They don't want to live this. They don't want to sacrifice for this. They want to say, I want to be a Christian and live the way I want to live. I want to be a Christian and do what I want to do. I want to be a Christian and believe what I want to believe. I love Jesus, but Jesus is only like 0.1% of everything in my life. Everything else is me. And you are setting yourself up for failure. In him we live. In him we move. If Jesus says don't move, don't move. If Jesus says don't take that job, but it pays more money, Jesus... You're not going to need to convince Jesus. If he says don't do something, don't do it. Because it may be that open door that is so attractive is Satan in a job opportunity or Satan in a, in dressed up looking like something else. When Jesus says no, the answer is no, and you've got to submit to that. Because when you say yes to something that's not his will, you can't say yes to something that is his will. You're too busy doing, off, doing your own thing and not doing what God wants you to do. And so you're not in the place and in the mental, uh, you're not listening to the voice of the Lord to be able to say no to that because he's got a better yes. 
later down the road. I could preach all day. Man, I'm telling you. I, I told y'all when I, when I first started here, uh, when, I, when I was first uh, hired to be the administrative pastor, I still have a, an email folder in my email account that says rejections. Over 400 emails. 400 rejections. We don't want you. You're not the right fit. I was applying for jobs I was thoroughly able to do, educated or experienced in order to do them. And yet they say, you're not the right fit, you're not the right guy, not the right time, blah, blah, blah. I had some of the lamest excuses. Well, we're in a building program. We can't take... You are hiring. I'm applying. Don't tell me you can't afford it. The job post is on the internet and you haven't filled it. I mean, I've been rejected... Probably more than St. Paul was rejected. I, I know what it feels like to be rejected. And so when the Lord, but I was perfectly willing to go through over 400 no's for the one yes. And I told God, I said, I don't want 400 yeses. I just want one yes. But that yes, I want it to be from you. So you can shut every other door. And boy, did he. When you try to be the hero of your own story, God will tear, he will help you. He will help you tear down that idol. It will be painful, but if you are going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you cannot be the hero of your own story. He will not allow it. He's the hero. Turn with me to John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we're looking at verses 4 through 6. This is what it says. Whoever says, I know him, referring to Jesus. I know Jesus, but does not keep Jesus' commandments, is a liar. Ooh. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps Jesus' word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in Jesus. Okay, so hold on for a second. Here you go. John is saying, the Apostle John is saying, by this, this is the test. This will let you know if you are in him or not in him. And here's verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. If you say you're in him, it's an easy litmus test. You've got to walk the way Jesus walked, and that's our next point. Abiding in Christ is walking in the same way Jesus walked. Oh, that's it? That sounds so incredibly easy. I mean, how hard is that? We have, we have a whole book full of examples of how Jesus behaved and how he acted. But we also know how incredibly hard it is to do what Jesus did, to actually live it out. If you had to describe the personality of Jesus, how would you describe him? Some adjectives may be loving, merciful, compassionate, gracious, righteous, zealous, holy, pure, sinless. Are those words you would use to describe yourself? If you think 
yeah, Pastor Jason, I'm loving, I'm merciful, I'm humble. I'm one of the most humble people you'll ever meet. My humility knows no bounds. I'm righteous, I'm zealous for God's uh, cause, I'm holy. I don't watch, I don't watch MSNBC, I'm holy. I'm pure. I'm blameless. I'm righteous. I'm sinless. Okay. Well, clearly, if you think you're all or any of those things, ask your spouse. Ask someone close to you. And I guarantee you, they will show you your blind spots. Ask them to be honest with you. It's actually a good exercise. From time to time, it's painful. But from time to time, Angela and I do that exercise. We ask each other, what do I need to do better? As a husband, as a father, what can I do better? And you ask them to be honest, and it, it'll sting a bit. Because, you know, I mean, you, don't ever ask a question you're not, you don't really want to know the answer to. Because your spouse is going to, well, okay, well, <laughs> how much time do we have, you know? Let me get my list. Hold on. I've been working on this for a couple months. It's about 40 pages long, but here we go. It's in really small font, single space. <clears throat> Don't ask that question if you're not prepared to deal with the hard truth, okay? But when you ask that question, then you get to see the blind spots. You see how you really come across the attitudes and the actions that are lurking in your blind spots that you need to deal with before they destroy you. Turn to Matthew 26 with me. If you have your Bible, I'm sorry, I turn a lot faster than you do because I put post-it notes so you wouldn't have to sit here and wait for all my pages to rustle. Matthew 26, we got it up on the screen. Uh, 36 through 46, it says, and then Jesus went with him. I'm sorry, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, assuming those three, Peter, James, and John, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Slackers. And he said to Peter, So, uh, when I read this, the word so there at the beginning just cracks me up. It's kind of like, you know, um, like a valley girl kind of thing. So could you not watch? I don't know. But probably not. Jesus definitely did not talk like that. But it's just funny to me. So could you not watch with me one hour? It's a little maybe sarcastic there. I'm not sure. Jesus is frustrated. So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. They're teenagers. They've been up all night. 
So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What we see in this passage is that abiding in Christ strengthens us against temptation. Abiding in Christ strengthens us against temptation. The disciples had no idea what was about to happen. Even though Jesus had repeatedly told them he would be betrayed, he would be turned over to religious leaders, he would be flogged, beaten, and crucified, they still didn't get it. It was all about to go down, and so Jesus slipped away to pray privately. He told them, my soul is deeply grieved because my death is near. Stay and keep watch with me. Abide with me. He poured out his heart to the Father. He said, my Father, if it's possible, if there's any other way, let this cup that contains my suffering and death, let it pass from me. Yet, and this, is, this should be our prayer, our position at all times, yet, not my desires, but your desires be done. Jesus is God, but he was also man. And the flesh was fighting against God's purposes. Satan had to be whispering to him in the garden, only a crazy person would do what you're about to do. Don't do this. You can avoid all the suffering. Jesus' human body endured so much sorrow and emotion that the capillaries in his forehead, the vessels began to burst and blood began to pour down like sweat on his forehead. Dealing with all of that and trying to stay strong to finish the mission God put him here for, he returned to find his disciples asleep. Their eyes were heavy. Jesus says, couldn't you just wait with me for one hour? Now, to be fair, Jesus didn't say, I'm just going to pray for an hour. Can you stay awake for that long? Sometimes Jesus goes away and he prays for several hours. They didn't know. But Jesus comes back and says, couldn't you just wait with me for an hour? The frustration in Jesus' voice Guys, don't you know what this is? Don't you know this is the hour? If you don't abide with me, if you don't stay with me, you will fall into temptation. The spirit is willing to do what is right, but your flesh is weak. Three times he found them sleeping instead of abiding. And when the time came for Jesus to be arrested, every one of the disciples reacted in flesh instead of in spirit. Every one of them scattered and ran out of self-preservation. They betrayed Jesus and denied even knowing him. After all that they had witnessed, all the healings, all the miracles, all the dead raised to life, all the times they unequivocally knew that Jesus was the Messiah, all went out the window at that moment. Why? Because the heat got turned up and they had chosen not to abide with Jesus. And so what we learn is that abiding with Christ will reveal all the blind spots, all the hidden motives, all the secret sins that the enemy is hiding from you to bring about your ruin. 
abiding with Christ will reveal all the blind spots, all the hidden motives, all the secret sins that the enemy is hiding from you to bring about your ruin. Things you don't want to talk about. Things you don't want to think about. Things you don't want to deal with. Things that are lurking just beneath the surface that you don't have a grip on. Behavior that you have come to excuse and accept that has absolutely no place in someone trying to look like and be like Jesus Christ. The Holy, the Holy Spirit will reveal places in your life that are considerably more filthy and profane than holy. And your job is to abide with Him and respond accordingly. Let Him do heart surgery on you and cut those things out of your life that have no business being there in the first place. Secret sins are cancer, and they will eat you from the inside out. And the only way to get rid of cancer is for a, a, a skilled surgeon to cut away what is infected and what is killing you to save your life. Is it painful if you're awake? Absolutely. I was wide awake on Monday when the Lord began to do heart surgery on me. But he was saving me from things that I was unaware of so that I could be aware of them. I could abide with him and be in his presence. John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. John 8, 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. These are Jews that have accepted Christ. They're following Jesus. They're very religious. They're very involved in, in, in everything. And, and maybe Pharisees or Sadducees or whatever. But So they're Jews that are following. They're followers of Christ. They're disciples and they're learning. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Hallelujah. We love that verse, don't we? They answered him, a bit of a back and forth with Jesus. They said, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Yes. We love it. We quote it. We sing it. Mm, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. Hallelujah. Gets us all excited and riled up. Well, the point here in this passage is that abiding in Christ creates freedom. But there's something really important that you've got to catch in this passage. Notice what Jesus says and follow the progression. If you abide in my word, then what? You're my disciples. If you're my disciples, you'll know the truth. If you know the truth, it'll set you free. If it sets you free, you're a son and free from practicing sin. If the son sets you free, you are truly, completely, and utterly free. But what does that entire string of logic depend upon? Work it backwards. What allows you to be completely free from sin's curse? What opens the door for us to be sons and daughters? What enables us to know what the truth is? What allows us to be considered his disciples? The statement that all of that is built upon is the very first statement he said, if you abide in my word, if you 
abide in my word. Then the rest of that is all true. We love to quote the phrase, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed, but we almost always forget to quote the conditional statement that precedes it. If you abide in my word, if you abide in Christ, you are free indeed. And you will have freedom from slavery to sin. Because what happens when you abide in Christ, when you get tempted to do something, you'll ask yourself, or you can start to ask yourself, is doing this thing abiding in Christ? Because I guarantee you the Holy Spirit will tell you yes or no right away. The Holy Spirit wants you to be more like Christ. He's fashioning you into Christ's image. And so if it's not going to help you abide in Christ, he's going to say no. Or you'll know, no, that's not abiding in Christ. If I say this thing, if I post this thing on Facebook, if I go to this place, if I do this thing, is this abiding in Christ? Ask yourself that. And then you'll find that you are no longer a slave to your emotions. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to anything because you are free. Abiding in Christ creates freedom. Next. You're getting like 20 sermons worth today. John chapter 15. John 15, 1 through 10. It's a a big chunk, but it's incredibly important to this topic. John 15, 1 through 10. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more fruitful. So if it's unfruitful, he cuts it off. If it is fruitful, he prunes it. That's why Christians go through difficult times. He's pruning you to make you more fruitful. Is pruning fun? No. Is it painful? Usually. Something is being severed. It's being cut off. It's being removed from us. And sometimes it's something that we really liked. We really, we were putting a lot of uh, attention towards. He'll prune us to make us more fruitful. Verse 3, already you are clean because the word I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me. Are you catching a common theme here? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, because we don't see, you know, cut off branches laying around in your neighborhood just sprouting grapes and oranges and apples and stuff. The fruit, uh, so the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you. You can't bear fruit unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't know if you mark in your Bibles, but that's a really good statement to mark. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch. Uh Uh-oh. He's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We really like that statement, don't we? We like the last part. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for me. But we frequently leave out the first part. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Why? Because we're not saying our words, we're saying his words. If his words abide in us, we're saying the things that God says. And if you agree with God, you're always right. 
If you agree with God, you're always right. I love that the T-shirt. It says, if I agreed with you, we'd both be wrong. I was going to buy that for myself to wear around the office <clears throat> or the house. <clears throat> Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Oh, man. Abiding allows Jesus to work through us. Abiding allows Jesus to work through us. In verse 4, he explicitly tells the disciples to abide with him, dwell with him. We're his disciples, so we've got to abide. We've got to dwell. We've got to stay in relationship and communication with him. We've got to be with him. And then he gave the example, in case you don't know, of how a vineyard works. The vine, Jesus, produces the fruit. The branch doesn't produce the fruit. What are you, a vine or a branch? You're a branch. The branch doesn't produce the fruit. The vine does. The branch, all the branch does is bear the fruit. The vine produces it, and you bear it. Isn't that such a liberating statement? You don't have to worry about producing fruit. That's not your job. His job is producing it. Your job is bearing it and sharing it. Just in case anybody wasn't clear on how fruit and branches and vines work, Jesus specified an important point at the end of verse 5. He says, separate from me, without me, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to know what the Greek word for nothing is, it's it's right there. You can look it up online. In English is what it means, nothing. It doesn't mean something. It doesn't mean a lot of things. It doesn't mean everything. It means nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There is nothing of value that we could ever do for God or really for anyone if we try to do it apart from him. When you cut off a branch, when you're outside and you're pruning your trees and cutting off branches because there's no life in them, We've had to do that a couple times. We've had a tree that just was rotten from the inside out, and so we had to cut it down. And when you cut off that branch, it doesn't keep bearing fruit. It has been completely cut off from its source of life. So what does it do? It withers up and dies. And the only thing it's good for now is to be burned. If you are spiritually withered, if you're spiritually dried up, if you're spiritually dead inside, it's because you have cut yourself off from the vine. You have not been abiding in him. All your work, all your ministry, all your efforts have been in your own power. And one day soon you will exhaust yourself trying to do God's work for him. Trust me, I know firsthand. Before being elected as a senior pastor here, I was the interim pastor for five months. That meant I had my full-time job as the administrative pastor, but I also had all of the, uh, many, uh, most of the senior pastor duties as well. Now, Angela and I knew that God had called us to pastor this church. 
but it was a, in that interim period of the five months of uh, in between where I was kind of doing both jobs, we were, uh, it was a tremendous amount of stress. Uh, we were also dealing with a situation from a family member that was uh, creating even more stress in our family. And I thought that it was, uh, I thought this situation should be handled this way. Angela felt like it should be handled a different way. And it was creating a rift between us. And one night, things got so intense that we were not speaking to each other. Now, you know the, the situation had to be really, really bad because Angela and I love each other tremendously. Like she is my best friend. I'm her best friend. I love all of you, but I don't love you as much as I love her. And I was mad at her. I told her I was going to tell this story. I was just, just in case you're warning about our marriage now. It's okay. <laughs> I told her I was going to tell this story. I think some of y'all are looking a little worried. What's he doing? Is he digging a hole? No. I told her I was going to tell this story. Because uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've, I've gotten to the point where I've, I'm okay not being the hero of my own story anymore. I was mad at her. She wasn't seeing things my way. She was mad at me for not seeing things her way. And uh, so we were in the bedroom together and not speaking, not looking breathing heavily, you know, come on. If you're married, you know. And everything you do is loud. Like, you don't even realize the decibel level of doing normal things until you're mad at someone, and you don't care what the decibel level is. You're going to do it loudly on purpose. You slam this cupboard and put this plate down, and, oh, you got to be careful with the eggs. got to put the eggs down. But put the cheese down, and, you know, slam in the cupboards, and... Everything was loud. And so we're in the bedroom anyway. I was talking, giving you kitchen metaphors, but we're in the bedroom, and I'm sitting on the bed, and she's on the other side of the bed. We're not talking to each other. We're not looking at each other. I'm, I'm breathing like... And so finally I just get up. I grab my pillow, grab a blanket, and I go into the baby's room, which is right next to ours, and there's a recliner in there and I put my pillow down and I lay down stretch out put the blanket down pull up pull the handle I'm totally reclined just laying in there I'm asleep in here tonight I don't want to sleep in the same room with you because I was pretty sure she didn't want to sleep in the same room with me she was in the other room she was packing a suitcase to go stay with her mom for a few days until I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know what, what was going through her mind. I only know what was going through my mind. So there I was. I was sitting in a dark room. I was watching the baby sleep. And I realized that the one person that I love more than anybody else in the world was about to walk out the door. And there I was, fuming. I didn't want to apologize because I didn't think I was wrong. I thought I'd handled things the right way. And my gut... My spirit kept telling me to go in there. But my pride was telling me she should come to me. I'm going to give you some free marriage advice. Especially young people if you're unmarried. Uh, But pretty much for any life advice, pride will kill you. 
Pride will kill your marriage. It will kill every significant relationship, every meaningful relationship that you have. Pride will kill everything you're trying to do for the Lord. And you can say, I'm really doing it for the Lord, but you know in your heart you're doing it for yourself. So pride was keeping me in the chair. And my spirit kept saying, go make it right. And as I told you a couple weeks, two weeks ago, I think, in that sermon, love makes the first move. And it's not that she didn't love me. It's that God was dealing with me. Because maybe she was right. But I knew I needed to make the first move. So I finally got up, pulled the handle back, and reclined the thing down. And I'm going to make some more noise. Because I'm still angry. I walk in the bedroom, and she was so mad. She did not want to stay in the house with me. She didn't, you know, what, for whatever reason, she was putting clothes for her, for the babies in a suitcase. And uh, so I walked on her side of the bed. I stood in front of her, and I couldn't even get out a sentence before my heart just burst open, and I just wept into my hands. And I told her, I was so tired. I was so emotionally and spiritually and mentally exhausted, and I didn't think I could do it anymore. I had tried to do everything. I had tried to be everything for everyone, and I was doing it all in my own strength. And I had finally reached the place. I had finally reached the end of what I could do. All my work, all my effort had not made me a better pastor. It hadn't made me a better Christian. It hadn't made me a better husband or father. It actually made me worse at all of those things. I was trying to do everything in my own strength. And instead of abiding in him and just bearing fruit, I had cut myself off from the vine and I was trying to produce fruit in my own power. Now, you may be in the same situation where all your work, all your ministry, all your efforts have been done in your own power, and one day soon you will exhaust yourself trying to do God's work for him. I know firsthand what it feels like to discover the end of yourself, the end of your efforts, the end of what you can do through human ability. I was working so hard and I was losing at the same time. I was losing my grip on everything that was so important to me. Abiding in Christ taught me that it is not up to me. It has never been up to me. It will never be up to me. I don't create the fruit. I just bear it. The vine produces the fruit. The branch branch bears the fruit. I was trying so hard to create the fruit, to make things happen, to be super pastor, to show that I could handle the stress and I could handle the workload. And all I really did was show how little I could do in my own ability. When Moses was on the mountain with God, God told him that that they could go. He said, you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you because Israel is repeatedly disobedient and I'm afraid that if I go along with you and they continue disobeying, that I will destroy them in my anger. So you can go to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. To which Moses, faced with the prospect of leading this nation from where they were into Canaan and facing all of the tribes of Canaan and defeating them, had the wisdom to say to God, Lord, if you're not going with us, 
If we're not going in your power, if you're not going to abide with us and dwell with us on your journey, then do not send us anywhere because we don't want to go any place where your presence is not. When you learn how to abide and learn the power of being in God's presence, you won't want to do anything outside of that. When you ask yourself, am I abiding in Christ by doing this thing or going to this place? If the answer is no, you won't want to do that thing. You, won't want to, you will not want to go to that place because abiding in Christ becomes your very lifeblood. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, cut off from the vine, you, the branch, will wither and die and not even recognize it until it's too late. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, at the bottom of your bulletin insert, I've given, I've recommended two things for you to do this week to help you drive this message home. And the first thing I want you to do this week is read 1 John. You can, it's only five chapters. You could actually do it during the halftime show, and I guarantee you it'll be more edifying than what you will watch. You just flip that on, turn it off. Say, good luck to you, J-Lo and Shakira. I'm sure you're wonderful people and Jesus loves you, but I'm going to abide in Christ. I'm not going to look at you gyrating and dancing like crazy over there. Let me, hey, it wasn't that long ago when the term wardrobe malfunction was coined because we were not abiding in Christ. We were abiding in the Super Bowl, and we all regretted it. And if you had kids in the room, you really regretted it. It was not family-friendly. Read 1 John, five chapters. 1 John, it talks about abiding in Christ. And then read it again. And then read it again. And read it until you get it. it talks about abiding in Christ. Don't do it right now. I'm not done. I know. I hear y'all flipping pages. I'm like, well, he said do it. I'm d- later. Not now. Later. 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 The other thing I want you to do is I want you to go on Right Now Media. If you don't have a subscription, fill out the, uh, fill out the guest card on your bulletin, and we will give you a sub- free subscription to Right Now Media. There's a video I want you to watch. It's called Apart From Me, You Can Do Nothing. Real catchy title. Straight out of John chapter 15. It's by a pastor named Pete Briscoe. It's easy to find. Apart From Me, You Can Do Nothing by Pete Briscoe. And uh, I want you to watch that video and, and think about it, dwell on what he says. Uh, I'm going to actually share a story from his message, assuming that some of you will not do what I'm asking you to do. I mean, let's face it. Some of y'all are going to go home and you're going to watch this half, halftime show and you're not going to abide in Christ and you're not going to watch what I tell you to watch. All right, you're free. I'm not forcing you to do it. So I'm going to just share, I'm going to share the story that he shares uh, in, in that sermon. <clears throat> he said that when he was a boy, he was in Sunday school. He was five years old. He was in Sunday school. And his Sunday school teacher was also a magician. Now, how cool is that Sunday school class? I mean, it was packed with boys. Because every Sunday, the Sunday school teacher would do a magic trick and connect it with the lesson that he would do. And the boys were just in awe. You know, they were like, wow, that's so cool. And so one Sunday morning, he told the boys, he said, I, kids, have seen the greatest magic trick of all, and I want to show it to you today. And he said, boys, I have a magic glove. It's a magic glove. 
And this magic glove will cause the Bible to levitate when I give it the command. So the boys are like, okay. So he places the glove on the Bible. And he gives the command. Glove, pick up the Bible. And the boys are just in awe. What's going to happen? And it doesn't move. All of his other tricks worked. This one's not working. It's okay, okay, all right, sorry, Andrew, sorry, calm down, calm down. They're five-year-olds. I don't know if you need to think about five-year-olds, but they're incredibly impatient. You better produce. Better put your money where your mouth is for a five-year-old. So he says, glove, pick up the Bible. Nothing happens. So it's like, all right, kids, hold on, hold on. He said, let me try it one more time. So he turns, he puts the glove on, he says, glove, pick up the Bible. <gasps> Kids, look at this. It's levitating. The glove is holding the Bible. Can you see this, kids? And so finally one five-year-old spoke up and says, do you think we're stupid? It's not the glove. It's the hand inside the glove. To which the Sunday school teacher said, For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said in Colossians 1.27 that this great mystery of God has been revealed. It's Christ in you, the hope of of glory, Christ in you, you're the glove. You're not the hand, you're the glove. That Christ is in you and he's working through you. And so when you minister to someone, you're the glove that Christ is using to to minister and to touch someone's life. When you give, when you feed someone who's hungry, when you help someone who's poor, when you bless someone who's in need, it's not you, it's Christ in you. You are the glove. There's no life in the glove. If I were to take this off, there's no life in this. There's no, thank you. There's no life in that glove. The life is in the hand. We are the shell. We are the glove. We don't create the fruit. We bear the fruit. We don't do things for God. We abide in him and he does things through us. There's no life in us. It's no longer I who live. And trust me, that's a good thing. Because when we were living before Christ, we were dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. And we were full of death. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the hope of glory. Christ in me. Him working. Him ministering. Him serving. Him blessing. Him witnessing. All through me. Abiding in Christ allows Jesus to work through us. Lastly. This is why I wanted to start my sermon early. Lastly. Psalm 91 says this, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. 
He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you, no plague come near your tent. You should pray that during flu season. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This last point is abiding in Christ is the safest place to be. Every morning before school, my mother would sit my brother and I down, brother me down at the kitchen table. She would read Psalm 91, this psalm, every Day. I cannot remember a single day when my mother skipped reading this. This psalm, this wonderful psalm, is a psalm of protection. It is God's promise that he is our refuge, he's our strength, he's our fortress. When terror and fear try to come near us, he will cover us and protect us. Wicked people around us may be dropping like flies left and right all around us, but we'll only see it with our eyes. His angels will be directed to protect us and to guard us. The end of the psalm changes from the psalmist talking to God, to God talking to the psalmist. And it says, this is God's response back to us because he holds fast to me. In love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And we love that part. What an amazing promise from God. But what is all of our part in all of this? What do all those promises from God depend upon? Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. All these promises from God are completely dependent upon you dwelling and abiding in Him. If you're not abiding, you're off doing your own thing, and God necessarily will not protect you. You've willfully taken yourself out from under God's protection, and you've told God, I don't need your help. I don't need your protection. I'll come to you if there's a problem. But otherwise, I got this. Now, we might not verbally say that to the creator of the universe, but we sure do live our lives that way. We live a life of comfort and convenience where we only really need God when a crisis comes. There are missionaries around the world who face serious danger at all times. Their children could be kidnapped. On the way home from school, their homes have been broken into. They've been attacked and brutalized. There could be roadside bombs. They could be targeted specifically because they're American. The enemy is out to stop their message, to stop their ministry, and to stop the move of God. The enemy will find the weakest link. He will find the softest spot, and he will push hard. If you are not abiding in Christ, you have cut yourself off from the vine and you are dying. Let me tell you something. Missionaries understand the value of abiding with Christ because danger in some places lurks at every corner. 
If you're not abiding in Christ, you've cut yourself up from the vine and you are dying. And everything close to you and everything important to you is at risk if you are not abiding in Christ. The good news. And with Christ, there is always good news. Is that there is an easy fix. God is telling you exactly what he told me. Abide with me. Don't rush. Don't be in a hurry. Don't rush through your prayer time. Don't rush through your worship time. Don't rush through your Bible study time so you can check it off your to-do list to get to more important things. Abiding with Christ is the most important thing. It is the only thing that really matters. Because apart from him, away from him, without him, we can do absolutely nothing. Worship team, come up. Would you stand with me this morning? As I told you last Monday when I got in the office after being sick, uh, sick for four days, I had no idea God was going to slap me around. But it was good because I needed it. And you might have needed it as well. You might be stuck in a rut in your devotional life. For some of you, it's not that you haven't been doing it. You might just be rushing through it and not getting anything out of it. For a moment, I want you to imagine. Just, just take, take a moment and just imagine someone that you would love to sit down and have a conversation with. If somebody asked you, hey, I want you to, to think about just who out of celebrity, historical figure, um, you know, uh, famous author, would you love to just sit down with? If they said, I'm going to give you an hour of my day every single day, and we can just hang out and talk. C.S. Lewis, George Washington, I don't want to say a celebrity. Um, you know, any of these people, if, if they said, you know what, I want to hang with you. I want to spend some time with you. Let's just talk. Let's just fellowship. Let's hang out. Let's grab coffee. And let, let's, let's discuss. Let's dwell together. Let's have a conversation. You would put all the other appointments on hold. You would, you would make sure that nothing interfered with that time because it was so important to you. This person, this, this important figure of history or whatever, it wants to hang out with me and talk with me and spend time with me. And so every, I'm not going to answer my phone. I'm not going to reply to text messages. I'm not going to be sucked into the Facebook uh, black hole or the YouTube suggested videos. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be totally focused on doing this one thing because this is valuable to me. It's important to me. It, it, it's, it's, I, I want to do it. I'm going to get something out of it. How much more should we treat our time with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? The worship team is going to lead us in a song that we sang earlier today, and it's been on my prayer this week. The song, the chorus, I need you more. I need you more than ever. I need you more. Jesus, I need you more. And the second verse says, I will abide. It is not accidental that we chose the song. I will abide. Be still. And know that you are God. Some of you need to come down to the altar. 
and abide. You need to just be still. We're going to get to the offering. You think if a pastor has ever forgotten an offering, he has not. We'll get to the offering. If you need to go and you need to give, our, we got ushers at the back, and you're perfectly fine. We've got some things we need to bring to your attention and announce. We'll get there, all right? If you feel like I've got a better place to be, then go. But I feel like abiding with Christ for at least a few moments this morning is the greatest way you can start your week. Let him have control of that situation that you just cannot grab control of, that you can't get a grip on. Give everything over to him. Fully surrender everything that you are, all that you have, all that you do, all your ambitions, all your hopes, all your dreams, all the things you want to do with your life. Let that go. Surrender those things. If you're ready to surrender, I I encourage you, as they worship, as they lead us in this final song, come to the altar. The altar symbolizes the place of surrender. And let go of control of all the things you've been holding on to so tightly. And give him control and just abide.